Welcome to You Might Relate, a podcast where we take relationships and mental health to the next level. I am Stacy Heaps, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for the last 15 years. There are counseling concepts and stories that I am excited to share. When we know better, we do better. Together, let's get to a place of radical acceptance of where we are while improving relationships and tackling life's transitions, one therapy concept and one story at a time. So let's get started to see if you relate. Welcome back to You Might Relate. I am your host, Stacy Heaps, and we are going to be pausing on attachment theory. But don't worry, we're going to get back to it. How's your summer going? Are you staying cool? I will get back to attachment theory, but we are going to focus on a form of trauma today that is often overlooked, but incredibly important. We'll be discussing religious trauma, a topic that requires both understanding and empathy. So I'm so glad you are here. And whether it's you who has religious trauma or someone you love has it, we are just going to try today to get to a place of understanding. And most of the time, in case you're wondering, I choose my topics by way of what I am seeing in my practice. And there has been a huge increase in spouses who don't understand why their spouse does not want to attend church anymore. Or why one of their teens or kids don't want to attend, or why they don't believe. And why can't they just suck it up? Put on their big underwear and do it anyway. And so maybe you will relate to this or someone who has experienced religious trauma, or you have neighbors or friends or family who have. Before we get into it, I want to introduce or remind you about the Enneagram system. Have you heard of this? It's the oldest personality test out there. And you can Google it and take the test and find out what you are dominant in and it will give you numbers. So on whether it's this personality test or another, it just shows that individuals are just that. Individuals. And we have innate sense of values in us that we are born with. The goal of the Enneagram personality test is, as Richard Rohr writes, if you could look out at reality from nine pairs of eyes and honor all of them, you could be looking at reality through the eyes of God. The Enneagram is an emotionally focused system of understanding people, honing in on their core emotional motivations and fears. And each of the nine personality types has its own driving force, which is centered around a particular emotion. So some Enneagram types experience strong emotions, while other types aim to avoid emotions in one form or another. The nine types of the Enneagram are divided into three sections. There's the heart types, the head types, and the body types. Heart types depend on their emotional intelligence to understand their own reactions and connect with others. Head types 
depend on their intellectual intelligence to make sense of things and navigate the world around them. And then body types depend on their instinctual intelligence to follow their gut and respond to threats and opportunities. We won't go into a lot of detail. This could probably be another podcast episode. So we won't go into a lot of detail about the Enneagram, but I just want to tell you about the nine types so you can go and take the test if you haven't already so you can understand yourself and then maybe understand others' motivations better. The point is not to make each other be the same. All nine of those different ways are all valid and good. And we have different motivations. Let's just start. There's the giver, the achiever, and the individualist. Those are the heart types. Then we have the investigator, the skeptic, and the enthusiast. Those are the head types. And then we have the body types, which is the challenger, the peacemaker, and the perfectionist. So whether you subscribe to a certain personality test or not, we can probably agree that we are all created different and have different motivations. So like I always say, two people can be in the same car accident, the same political speech or the same congregation, and they will experience two different things. And my goal with this podcast episode and with the podcast in general is that no matter what Enneagram number or personality you have, That is your experience. Own it. And you don't have to feel shame or think you shouldn't feel a certain way. We are only trying to create understanding for everyone's experiences. I was talking to someone recently and we were discussing one person in particular exaggerating a story. And this person said, I wish we could just give people a break. And I said, well, for me, truth matters. Probably our motivations are different. I'm a different Enneagram than she is, and that's okay. That just means our values are different. She's going to lean toward, it's okay to exaggerate stories, and I'm going to lean toward, I think the truth matters. Neither of those are wrong or bad. It just shows that we are going to have different things that affect us. Okay, so let's get into religious trauma, because it can be really hard to understand if you have not experienced it, because what brings peace and comfort to you brings someone else trauma. And this means we need to hold two truths up together. And that takes an emotional adult to do that. That's another reason I want this podcast is because I want us all to practice being emotional adults. First, let's talk about the good that so many find in religion. For many, religion is the place where someone can find spiritual guidance. It's a place for community and support, a place where morals and ethics and values are framed, and it's a place for emotional and psychological support. It helps people find purpose and meaning and also can be a place where there are plentiful Lots and lots of opportunities for personal growth. And people can participate in charitable giving, service. And for many, they come from a long line of faithful generations in that faith. And so it's as if it's 
in your DNA to continue being in that faith. And it's a place where people can worship how, where, or what they may. And and we don't want to discount any of that. That is absolutely not my purpose. I hope that if you've never experienced religious trauma, that you don't, and that you continue to find peace and comfort and high morals and community and giving and opportunities and all the good things that I just listed. There's too many to list of good reasons to want to belong to a religion and to stay in a religion and feel connected to a religion. I support you in that. I also want to support the people who are experiencing religious trauma syndrome. Okay, so let's start by understanding what it is. While not officially recognized by the DSM-5, I'm going to shorten it. Religious trauma syndrome can also be termed as RTS, and it has been identified by several, many psychologists and psychotherapists as a group of symptoms experienced by individuals who have been part of an authoritarian, dogmatic religious group or belief system. If you feel yourself getting defensive of your religion, just notice it. We're not attacking. Just notice how you're feeling, okay? Remember, our goal here is to hold up two truths together. So the term religious trauma syndrome was first coined by someone named Marlene Winnell. And I agree with Winnell for the need to label because when we label things, I mean, I don't like labeling and then I like labeling. So I'm holding two truths together. But when we do label things, the benefit of it is naming the symptoms and then people feel less alone in the symptoms. And it also helps to lessen the shame and isolation for people who are experiencing it. So the old saying, if you can't name it, you can't treat it. So naming it helps people with the diagnosis, treatment, and then training professionals. And you know what? Actually, when I first heard religious trauma syndrome, I'm like, I don't like that it's called a syndrome because I am a mother of a daughter with Down syndrome. And so to me, it just made sense that when you have a syndrome, you have it because you're born with it. But that's not necessarily true. A syndrome just means that it's a group of symptoms which consistently occur together. What they're finding is, man, people who have religious trauma syndrome, there are common symptoms. Just like the people with Down syndrome have the flat nose, the extra skin on the back of their neck, and their shorter almond-shaped eyes that slant up. Anyway, religious trauma syndrome has its set of symptoms as well, that fit into PTSD diagnosis. Usually people with religious trauma syndrome, they will get a PTSD diagnosis, but the symptoms are religiously based. I want to put in here, again, two people can be in the same car crash and experience in two different ways. We don't shame the person who got shook up by the car crash and praise the person who didn't get shook up. We just acknowledge that, oh, You didn't get shaken up and you did. Or people can go through a divorce and one person is totally shaken up and the other person isn't. It's okay that we have different experiences because, again, remember, we have different values. Go and take your Enneagram and find out what your values are if you don't know. My ask today is that we hold space for someone who sits in the same pew yet interprets and feels the aftermath of a talk, lesson, 
or sermon in a different way than you. To blame the individual who interprets a sermon negatively rather than empathizing with their unique perspective because of their unique personality or Enneagram number, we're just going to challenge that today, okay? So at the core of religious trauma syndrome, there are two fundamental narratives. So here they are. You are not okay and you are not safe. And I'm going to add, you are not seen as an equal is another maybe part A of you are not okay. These narratives deeply ingrained in individuals through the teachings and practices of their religious group can cause significant emotional and psychological distress. And then to complicate it, people who end up leaving their religious group, so they decide, gosh, this isn't for me, or I am not resonating with the teachings, and so I'm going to take my leave, that actually can be more traumatic in and of itself because so often it turns to a loss of community, a loss of social status, a loss of family connections, a belief system, and a way of life. And this is complicated drama and complicated grieving because it's so complicated and it adds to the trauma. There is also the trauma of people who want to leave but don't feel emotionally safe to do so from their, it could be their spouse or their family or community. And so they stay in, but there is such an incongruent and cognitive dissonance is so strong that it can cause trauma and depression. We want what we think, feel, say, and do to all be aligned so we feel whole. When we can't do that or feel like we can't do that because we're not going to be safe, then we don't feel whole and it can become a mental issue. So I'm going to say that one more time. I want you to think about what you think, feel, say, and do. Is it in alignment with how you're living your life right now? Think, feel, say, and do. Okay, but to fully grasp Religious Trauma Syndrome, RTS, we need to first understand the concept of cognitive dissonance. Now, I discuss cognitive dissonance in episode 47, so please, if you want to go back and listen, that would be great if you didn't hear it. But cognitive dissonance, in short, refers to the mental discomfort experienced by someone who simultaneously holds two or more contradictory beliefs, values, or attitudes. So in the context of religious trauma syndrome, cognitive dissonance often comes out or emerges when the teachings or practice of a religion conflict with an individual's personal beliefs, values, or experiences. So for an example, a woman in the FLDS church may have a personal belief that she should have an equal voice and an equal say in her home and at church. But in the teachings, her leaders tell her to keep sweet, to not go up against the priesthood with complaints or criticisms. She might believe that Warren Jeffs is the prophet, but she also believes that she should not have to just keep sweet and she should be able to voice her concerns. So she's experiencing cognitive dissonance. One myth 
is that people who leave their religion of origin, the religion that they grew up in, that they lost their faith. But more times than not, what I see is people who have their values and their religion isn't living up to their values, which just causes them a lot of distress because they want to stay in their religion most of the time, and they would if it aligned with their values. So when our church or religion does not align with values or what we have experienced or what we believe, then that is what can cause us a lot of distress and trauma. It's this whole shift. It's a big change for somebody. So we see examples of religious trauma syndrome in many parts of society, which can be more public than others. And an extreme example, now I've never seen this, but I have heard stories plenty. The extreme example is in the reality series, The Duggar Family. I think I'm saying that right. Their experiences with strict religious dogma is portrayed and highlighted how an individual's sense of self and identity is deeply affected, leading to trauma. So I've just heard bits and pieces there. So that's one example that's very public. Another public example would be there in the Catholic priest scandals where, and I don't even know if scandals is the right word. It seems like it would be more, just a bigger word than scandal. But anyway, where children were looking up to these religious leaders as men of God, but they were also being abused by them. Imagine how hard that is for a child. And this all came to light in the 1980s, and then, of course, even more in the 2000s. Cognitive dissonance turned religious trauma, and it has many, many symptoms. So let's talk about more general examples of experiences that contribute to religious trauma syndrome. Of course, the obvious one is spiritual abuse. So this includes manipulation, control, and exploitation of individuals within a religious setting. So if you want to go in and just look up what does manipulation mean? What does control mean? What is exploitation mean? Especially in a religious setting. So it may involve emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, as well as the misuse of religious teachings to dominate or harm others. I have a friend who told me that when he, so he was a young teenager and he told me that it was after the first meeting and his dad saw him walking out the door of the church and his dad, hey, where are you going? He's, I'm just going to go home. And his dad came up to him and punched him. He said, no, you're not. You're going to class. And I'm just like, what? Having at church in front of everybody, that is spiritual abuse. You are being physically manipulated to stay at church. And his authoritarian way of doing that got physical and also went against the church teachings. I'm pretty sure that the church didn't teach you to punch your son in the face if he doesn't go to his class. Or Sunday school. Okay, so some people are told they will go to hell or not be with their family or use scare tactics, and it might even feel like it's out of love. But anytime 
we are trying to control someone else or we feel ourselves being controlled, manipulated over spiritual matters, it is abuse. And I love this one word, agency. We just all need to practice and remember we have, everyone has agency. Okay, number two, religious fundamentalism. Rigid and dogmatic belief systems that promote fear, guilt, guilt and shame that can lead to psychological distress. So this may involve really strict, strict adherence to religious doctrines, intolerance of differing beliefs, and the suppression of critical thinking or questioning. In episode 48, where Donia Jessup was told, don't look at outside sources or don't read the newspaper, don't look at the internet. All you need is to listen to my voice and my tapes, says Warren Jeffs. And then, of course, don't read or view or question or look at anything besides what they give you because then you won't be righteous. Well, that religion you belong to should be welcoming questioning and testing the truth, acknowledging mistakes and encouraging critical thinking and encouraging love to all who think and feel differently. Religious exclusivism. Some religions and groups teach that their beliefs are the only true path to salvation or enlightenment, and this can lead to feelings of anxiety, worthlessness, or fear, and fear of a lot of things, but divine punishment or not adhering to specific beliefs. Maybe we believe in some, but not all of it, and gosh, now what does that mean if I don't believe in all of it? So this would be some Christian religions, some Islam interpretations, some ultra-Orthodox Judaism, some forms of Hinduism, Scientology, etc., etc. The next one is sexual and gender-related trauma. Some religious environments foster or perpetrate harmful attitudes towards sexuality, gender identity, or sexual orientation. And this can lead to internalized shame and self-hatred and difficulties with self-acceptance. And this is where Jill Mortensen's experience, I think in the last episode, of how it was really harmful for her child to hear some of those attitudes toward gender and sexuality. And so ultimately she chose to take her family away. Have you ever heard of, and actually I know you've heard of this, and you learned about it in school. It's the study commonly known as the Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes Experiment. It was conducted by Jane Elliott, an American school teacher in 1968, the day after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Elliott, the teacher, designed this experiment to teach her third grade students about discrimination and the effects of prejudice and racism. During this experiment, Elliot divided her class into two groups based on eye color, blue-eyed students and brown-eyed students. On the first day, she declared that blue-eyed children were superior and smarter, and she gave them privileges such as extra recess time and allowing them to be first in line. And then she told the brown-eyed students that they were inferior and slower. And she 
limited their privileges and treated them very unfairly. And then the next day, Elliot reversed the roles, proclaiming that brown-eyed children were superior and blue-eyed children were inferior. The purpose of this exercise was to expose the children to the experience of being both the oppressor and the oppressed, challenging their assumptions and hopefully encouraging empathy. So the experiment caused significant, significant emotional distress for the children involved. And some of them showed changes in their behavior based on the assigned eye color. So the teacher, Elliot, discussed the experience with her students. And of course, she's trying to emphasize the importance of treating others with fairness and respect regardless of what they look like, whether they have blue eyes or brown eyes or whether they are dark skin or white skin. This is what our LGBTQ kids feel like when they hear messages in church. They cannot have the same lifestyle as their peers or experience the same salvation or I'm trying not to pinpoint just one religion if they are told they shouldn't feel one way toward the same gender or that they can't marry the same gender or they can't change genders, but then it causes that incongruence in them because they know that they do feel that way. They know that that is what they would want. So then it causes that what they think and feel, say and do are different. They have to be two different people at church and this causes significant distress. So even if you disagree and you adamantly think that people on the LGBTQI spectrum is wrong, you can at least understand why it would be so distressing to them and why they would have religious trauma. And many times these messages are being said by the people that the LGBTQ plus have grown up loving, that they live by, that they look up to, that have helped them, that have been second parents to them. But they're hearing these messages and you can understand why then they can feel this internalized shame or hate toward themselves or why they wouldn't feel comfortable. And it's just a tragedy to have these messages to especially our LGBTQ youth who already are struggling just to be teens, but then to have that on top of it. I urge you to trust that there is always in your congregation at least a handful of people who are LGBTQ in some way or who have loved ones who are. And how painful some of the messages that we speak over the pulpit are or can be or have been. And how we can remedy that so that a religious setting can be a safe place for all. 
can be a safe place for everyone and they don't have to feel like two different people or pretend to be something that they're not, that they can just be loved and accepted and valued and imagine the music and the talent if we just embraced our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So a trauma-informed therapist and trauma-informed general public, just like children, just like all of us, we act out when we feel like things are not fair. We feel When we feel heard, when we feel seen, when we feel understood, when we feel loved, we don't have to act out. So I guess I'll just leave that there. And so that is just some of the most harmful related trauma that I am seeing right now in the office and in, with families. And it's hardly anyone's fault necessarily because, you know, that generation was taught by the previous generation who was taught by the previous generation. And some things are just really hard to wrap your mind around looking at something a little differently or looking at science. Anyway, I guess whether you agree or not, you can understand why someone would not feel comfortable in that setting if they are LGBTQ and so why they would have some internalized trauma because of what they have heard multiple times in meetings. The next one is religious coercion and indoctrination. Growing up in a religious environment that heavily emphasizes conformity and obedience can result in feeling like you don't have any power in your life. There's a lack of autonomy. There's difficulties in being assertive. And again, when you are a certain Enneagram number and it goes against what your religious teachings are, that can again create cognitive dissonance and then move into this trauma. How about fear of hell or eternal punishment? Beliefs in eternal damnation or punishment can generate significant anxiety, guilt, and fear, particularly for individuals who question or express doubts about their faith. Also, I would put in here, I think, I can't remember what episode it was, but we mentioned scrupulosity. I think if you want to go back and listen to the one with Amanda Erdley, she talks a little bit about one of her children having scrupulosity, and that is when you have OCD, but in a religious context. That's a fascinating disorder, and yeah, it creates a lot of anxiety. I mean, OCD in general is just so hard to deal with, but when it's wrapped around religious things, you're constantly admitting things that even you have not done, but you've just thought of, and then you feel guilty for that. So there's both, right? And again, most of the time, most people are not going to have any of this, but enough people do that it's worth exploring and trying to understand. Those dealing with religious trauma syndrome experience a range of symptoms, and it can impact and vary from person to person. And not everyone who has experienced religious environments obviously will even develop religious trauma syndrome. In fact, I would say more will not experience this. And 
If that's you, consider yourself fortunate. But some will experience it and choose to stay in the religion, and some will experience it and choose to have one foot in and one foot out, and others are going to run away as fast as they can. And I just hope that we can have some understanding for whatever someone is choosing to do with their religious trauma. So some people's symptoms include cognitive impairments, decreased sense of self-worth, difficulties building relationships because they have a hard time trusting and struggling to fit into mainstream culture. And they may also show physical symptoms like sleep disorders or sexual dysfunction and mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and grief. So just like war vets who have PTSD, sometimes they don't know what's going to trigger them. It could be a muffler on a car or someone shut the door too loudly or a bad dream or just a memory or seeing a picture. And with religious trauma, it might be a song, might be church building, might be a stained glass window. People talking about the belief system can be hurtful. If you were someone who was abused by your uncle, do you think it would be okay if I said, well, you know what, let's just go visit your uncle. You don't have to look at him or see him, but you're just going to sit there and be in the same room with him. Is that fair to the person who is abused by the uncle, whether it be physical or sexual? I would say that's not fair. And not only is it not fair, but I would be encouraging some really firm boundaries and creating a safe place so that maybe you don't ever have to be in the same room as that uncle, at least until it's been treated and acknowledged that the abuse happened and there has been adequate responsibility taken for that abuse. And so sometimes we'll say to people, maybe even our kids, hey, I know that you have this religious trauma syndrome because of all these things, but I still want you to come. That is coupling trauma on trauma. And then if you're experiencing religious trauma, acknowledging your trauma and seeking professional help is the first step towards healing. If you're experiencing religious trauma syndrome, the first thing to do is just to acknowledge that you have trauma and seek professional help. That's the first step towards healing. Seek help. And there are a lot of trauma-informed ways to receive therapy. You could do cognitive behavior therapy. I also would suggest EMDR. I also think accelerated resolution therapy would be a really good one. Also, to find support groups, to find people who you can connect with who have experienced maybe something similar to help with your recovery process. And if you're a friend, a family member, or part of a congregation where someone is dealing with religious trauma syndrome, there are ways that you can provide support. So begin by listening empathetically and providing a safe, non-judgmental space for them to share their feelings. Now remember, you might not be in a place to hear why someone else has religious trauma. It might cause you to feel very defensive. 
And if that's the case, then you are not ready to be that friend or family to hear that person. You have to be in a place that you won't be defensive. They're dealing with personal pain. This might help you with not being defensive. It's remembering that when the person who has religious trauma syndrome is dealing with personal pain, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting a belief or a practice, but they're not rejecting you. It just didn't work for them, but it might work for you and that's okay. You know, practical help in helping someone would be just helping them find a therapist or spending time with them doing non-religious activities. And please, if you know someone has religious trauma, don't talk about your testimony or don't bring up how much you believe and love the religion. It is not helpful. In fact, it'll push that person with religious trauma far, far away because that would be a trigger for them and they will not feel safe around you. Educate yourself about religious trauma syndrome and be equipped to offer meaningful support, but only if you are in a place to do that. If you're not in a place, just acknowledge you're not in that place and that's okay. So if you are in a place and are not going to be defensive and you don't make it mean something about you and you don't take it personally, then empathizing with those who have experienced it. So empathizing, that's the crucial part. And then move away from blaming those who interpret the religious teachings in a negative way and instead seek to understand their unique experience. Maybe learn about their Enneagram number and kind of tie that into why they may feel the way they feel. You know, I'm a social worker, and so we look at things on a macro, meso, and micro level. And I was just thinking about how we could do better in our churches, synagogues, and temples if if there is a place for those who maybe don't subscribe to everything but still want community, where do those people go within your religion? And is there a safe place for them? Is there groups within the organization that they can join? Does your church or religion have something set up for people who question and is there a way to get them answered? Is there something like that that we could potentially create in our churches, no matter what religion you are belonging to, so that it doesn't have to be secret that, you know, the FLDS have to leave in the middle of the night so that they aren't scorned or it's so it's not this big coming out with their family. I don't believe anymore. But it's just I have support and the church or the religion provides this protection. Does your church or religion have the support there for questioners, doubters, incongruencies so that people can still feel like they belong? Here I am at the end of the podcast episode, and I just realized that I didn't even mention the trauma that family members can have or experience when their loved ones 
leave the religion or church or faith. And so that might have to be another podcast, but I do want to acknowledge it here that if your family member leaves, you know, certain faith, it can cause trauma to the ones who are staying. And that is notable. And is there support for you in your church or religion? And again, if not, what can we do about that? We can help shed light on this overlooked form of trauma and pave the way towards major healing. Thank you so much for joining me today as we navigated this very delicate topic. And remember, whether you are seen or unseen, your trauma matters and you matter. I appreciate you being with me today. I hope this sheds some light and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining me today on You Might Relate. I hope this topic brought understanding and insight. And if you can relate to something in today's episode, subscribe and leave a review. I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at You Might Relate Podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. The more understanding we create, the better we are as humans. You are in charge of your day, so go make it a good one. Catch you next time.